The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Truth and Fiction Relating to My Life by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe Translated by John Oxenford Section 22 Seventh Book, Part 1 about the condition of German literature of those times so much has been written, and so exhaustively, that everyone who takes any interest in it can be completely informed. In regard to it critics agree now pretty well, and what at present I intend to say piecemeal and disconnectedly concerning it, relates not so much to the way in which it was constituted in itself, as to its relation to me. I will therefore first speak of those things by which the public is particularly excited, of those two hereditary foes of all comfortable life, and of all cheerful, self-sufficient, living poetry. I mean satire and criticism. In quiet times everyone wants to live after his own fashion. The citizen will carry on his trade or his business, and enjoy the fruits of it afterwards. Thus will the author, too, willingly compose something, publish his labours, and, since he thinks he has done something good and useful, hope for praise, if not reward. In this tranquillity the citizen is disturbed by the satirist, the author by the critic, and peaceful society is thus put into a disagreeable agitation. The literary epoch in which I was born was developed out of the preceding one by opposition. Germany, so long inundated by foreigners, interpenetrated by other nations, directed to foreign languages in learned and diplomatic transactions, could not possibly cultivate her own. Together with so many new ideas, innumerable foreign words were obtruded necessarily and unnecessarily upon her, and, even for objects already known, people were induced to make use of foreign expressions and turns of speech. The German, having run wild for nearly two hundred years in an unhappy tumultuary state, went to school with the French to learn manners, and with the Romans in order to express his thoughts with propriety. But this was to be done in the mother tongue, when the literal application of those idioms and their half-Germanization made both the social and business style ridiculous. Besides this, they adopted without moderation the similes of the southern languages, and employed them most extravagantly. In the same way they transferred the stately deportment of the prince-like citizens of Rome to the learned German small-town officers, and were at home nowhere, least of all with themselves. But, as in this epoch works of genius had already appeared, the German sense of freedom and joy also began to stir itself. This, accompanied by a genuine earnestness, insisted that men should write purely and naturally, without the intermixture of foreign words, and as common intelligible sense dictated. By these praiseworthy endeavours, however, the doors and gates were thrown open to an extended national insipidity, nay, the dyke was dug through by which the great deluge was shortly to rush in. Meanwhile a stiff pedantry long stood its ground in all the four faculties, until at last, much later, it fled for refuge from one of them to another. Men of parts, children of nature looking freely about them, had therefore two objects on which they could exercise themselves, against which they could labour, and, as the matter was of no great importance, give a vent to their petulance. These were, a language disfigured by foreign words, forms, and turns of speech on the one hand, and the worthlessness of such writings as had been careful to keep themselves free from those faults on the other. Though it occurred to nobody that, while they were battling against one evil, the other was called on for assistance. 
lisco a daring young man first ventured to attack by name a shallow silly writer whose awkward demeanour soon gave him an opportunity to proceed still more severely he then went farther and constantly aimed his scorn at particular persons and objects whom he despised and sought to render despicable nay even persecuted them with passionate hatred but his career was short for he soon died and was gradually forgotten as a restless irregular youth the talent and character shown in what he did although he had accomplished little may have seemed valuable to his countrymen for the germans have always shown a peculiar pious kindliness to talents of good promise when prematurely cut off suffice it to say that lisco was very soon praised and recommended to us as an excellent satirist who could have attained a rank even above the universally beloved rabbiner here indeed we saw ourselves no better off than before for we could discover nothing in his writings except that he had found the silly silly which seemed to us quite a matter of course rabbiner well educated grown up under good scholastic instruction of a cheerful and by no means passionate or malicious disposition took up general satire his censure of the so-called vices and follies springs from the clear views of a quiet common sense and from a fixed moral conception of what the world ought to be his denunciation of faults and failings is harmless and cheerful and in order to excuse even the slight boldness of his writings it is supposed that the improving of fools by ridicule is no fruitless undertaking rabbiner's personal character will not easily appear again as an able punctual man of business he does his duty and thus gains the good opinion of his fellow townsmen and the confidence of his superiors along with which he gives himself up to the enjoyment of a pleasant contempt for all that immediately surrounds him pedantic literati vain youngsters every sort of narrowness and conceit he banters rather than satirizes and even his banter expresses no contempt just in the same way does he jest about his own condition his misfortune his life and his death there is little of the aesthetic in the manner in which this writer treats his subjects in external forms he is indeed varied enough but throughout he makes too much use of direct irony namely in praising the blameworthy and blaming the praiseworthy whereas this figure of speech should be used but extremely seldom for in the long run it becomes annoying to clear-sighted men perplexes the weak while indeed it pleases the great middle class who without any special expense of mind can fancy themselves more knowing than others but whatever he brings before us and however he does it alike bears witness to his rectitude cheerfulness and equanimity so that we always feel prepossessed in his favour the unbounded applause of his own times was a consequence of such moral excellencies that people looked for originals to his general descriptions and found them was natural that individuals complained of him followed from the above his lengthy apologies that his satire is not personal proved the spite it provoked some of his letters crown him at once as a man and an author the confidential epistle in which he describes the siege of dresden and how he loses his house his effects his writings and his wigs without having his equanimity in the least shaken or his cheerfulness clouded is highly valuable although his contemporaries and fellow-citizens could not forgive him his happy turn of mind the letter where he speaks of the decay of his strength and of his approaching death is in the highest degree worthy of respect and rabbiner deserves to be honoured as a saint by all cheerful intelligent men who cheerfully resign themselves to earthly events i tear myself away from him reluctantly yet i would make this remark his satire refers throughout to the middle class 
he lets us see here and there that he is also well acquainted with the higher ranks but does not hold it advisable to come in contact with them it may be said that he has had no successor that no one has been found who could consider himself equal or even similar to him now for criticism and first of all for the theoretic attempts it is not going too far when we say that the ideal had at that time escaped out of the world into religion it scarcely even made its appearance in moral philosophy of a highest principle of art no one had a notion they put gottsched's critical art of poetry into our hands it was useful and instructive enough for it gave us a historical information of all the kinds of poetry as well as of rhythm and its different movements the poetic genius was presupposed but besides that the poet was to have acquirements and even learning he should possess taste and everything else of that kind they directed us at last to horace's art of poetry we gazed at single golden maxims of this invaluable work but did not know in the least what to do with it as a whole or how we should use it the swiss stepped forth as gottsched's antagonists they must take it into their heads to do something different to accomplish something better accordingly we heard that they were in fact superior breitinger's critical art of poetry was taken in hand here we reached a wider field but properly speaking only a greater labyrinth which was so much the more tiresome as an able man in whom we had confidence was driving us about in it let a brief review justify these words for poetry in itself they had been able to find no fundamental axiom it was too spiritual and too volatile painting an art which one could hold fast with one's eyes and follow step by step with the external senses seemed more favorable for such an end the english and french had already theorized about plastic art and by a comparison drawn from this it was thought that poetry might be grounded the former presented images to the eye the latter to the imagination poetical images therefore were the first thing which was taken into consideration people began with comparisons descriptions followed and only that was expressed which had always been apparent to the external senses images then but where should these images be got except from nature the painter professedly imitated nature why not the poet also but nature as she lies before us cannot be imitated she contains so much that is insignificant and worthless that one must make a selection but what determines the choice one must select that which is important but what is important to answer this question the swiss may have taken a long time to consider for they came to a notion which is indeed singular but clever and even comical inasmuch as they say the new is always the most important and after they have considered this for a while they discover that the marvellous is always newer than everything else they had now pretty well collected their poetical requisitions but they had still to consider that the marvellous might also be empty and without relation to man but this relation demanded as necessary must be a moral one from which the improvement of mankind should manifestly follow and thus a poem had reached its utmost aim when with everything else accomplished it was useful besides they now wished to test the different kinds of poetry according to all these requisites those which imitated nature besides being marvellous and at the same time of a moral aim and use were to rank as the first and highest and after much deliberation this great preeminence was at last ascribed with the highest degree of conviction to aesop's fables strange as such a deduction may now appear it had the most decided influence on the best minds that gellert and subsequently lichtfer devoted themselves to this department 
that even Lessing attempted to labour in it, that so many others turned their talents towards it, speaks for the confidence which this species of poetry had gained. Theory and practice always act upon each other. One can see from their works what is the men's opinion, and from their opinions predict what they will do. Yet we must not dismiss our Swiss theory without doing it justice. Bodmer, with all the pains he took, remained theoretically and practically a child all his life. Reitinger was an able, learned, sagacious man, whom, when he looked rightly about him, the essentials of a poem did not all escape. Nay, it can be shown that he may have dimly felt the deficiencies of his system. Remarkable, for instance, is his query whether a certain descriptive poem by Koenig on the review camp of Augustus II is properly a poem, and the answer to it displays good sense. But it may serve for his complete justification that he, starting from a false point, on a circle almost run out already, still struck upon the main principle, and at the end of his book finds himself compelled to recommend as additions, so to speak, the representation of manners, character, passions, in short, the whole inner man, to which indeed poetry preeminently belongs. It may well be imagined into what perplexity young minds felt themselves thrown by such dislocated maxims, half-understood laws and shivered-up dogmas. We adhere to examples, and there, too, were no better off. Foreigners as well as the ancients stood too far from us, and from the best native poets always peeped out a decided individuality to the good points of which we could not lay claim, and into the faults of which we could not but be afraid of falling. For him who felt anything productive in himself, it was a desperate condition. When one considers closely what was wanting in the German poetry, it was a material, and that too a national one. There was never a lack of talent. Here we make mention only of Gunther, who may be called a poet in the full sense of the word, a decided talent endowed with sensuousness, imagination, memory, the gifts of conception and representation, productive in the highest degree, ready at rhythm, ingenious, witty, and of varied information besides. He possessed, in short, all the requisites for creating, by means of poetry, a second life within life, even within common real life. We admire the great facility with which, in his occasional poems, he elevates all circumstances by the feelings, and embellishes them with suitable sentiments, images, and historical and fabulous traditions. Their roughness and wildness belong to his time, his mode of life, and especially to his character, or, if one would have it so, his want of fixed character. He did not know how to curb himself, and so his life, like his poetry, melted away from him. By his vacillating conduct, Gunther had trifled away the good fortune of being appointed at the court of Augustus II, where, in addition to every other species of ostentation, they were also looking about for a court poet who could give elevation and grace to their festivities and immortalize a transitory pomp. Von Koenig was more manly and more fortunate. He filled this post with dignity and applause. In all sovereign states, the material for poetry comes downwards from above, and the review camp at Mühlberg, das Lustlager bei Mühlberg, was perhaps the first worthy object, provincial if not national, which presented itself to a poet. Two kings saluting one another in the presence of a great host, their whole courts and military state around them, well-appointed troops, a mock fight, fetes of all kinds. This is business enough for the outward sense, and overflowing material for delineating and descriptive poetry. This subject had, indeed, the internal defect that it was only pomp and show, 
from which no real action could result. None except the very first distinguished themselves, and, even if they had done so, the poet could not render any one conspicuous, lest he should offend the others. He had to consult the court and state calendar, and the delineation of the persons therefore went off pretty dryly. Nay, even his contemporaries very strongly reproached him with having described the horses better than the men. But should not this redound to his credit, that he showed his art just where an object for it presented itself? The main difficulty, too, seems soon to have manifested itself to him, since the poem never advanced beyond the first canto. Amidst such studies and reflections, an unexpected event surprised me, and frustrated my laudable design of becoming acquainted with our new literature from the beginning. My countryman, John George Schlosser, after spending his academical years with industry and exertion, had repaired to Frankfurt on the Main in the customary profession of an advocate. But his mind, aspiring and seeking after the universal, could not reconcile itself to the situation for many reasons. He accepted, without hesitation, an office as private secretary to the Duke Ludwig of Württemberg, who resided in Treptow, for the prince was named among those great men who, in a noble and independent manner, purposed to enlighten themselves, their families, and the world, and to unite for higher aims. It was this Prince Ludwig who, to ask advice about the education of his children, had written to Rousseau, whose well-known answer began with the suspicious-looking phrase, Si j'avais le malheur d'être né prince, not only in the affairs of the prince, but also in the education of his children, Schlosser was now willingly to assist in word and deed, if not to superintend them. This noble young man, who harboured the best intentions, and strove to attain a perfect purity of morals, would have easily kept men from him by a certain dry austerity, if his fine and rare literary cultivation, his knowledge of languages, and his facility at expressing himself by writing, both in verse and prose, had not attracted every one, and made living with him more agreeable. It had been announced to me that he would pass through Leipzig, and I expected him with longing. He came and put up at a little inn, or wine-house, that stood in the Brühl, and the host of which was named Schoenkopf. This man had a Frankfurt woman for his wife, and although he entertained few persons during the rest of the year, and could lodge no guests in his little house, yet at fair time he was visited by many Frankfurters, who used to eat, and, in case of need, even take quarters there also. Thither I hastened to find Schlosser, when he had sent to inform me of his arrival. I scarcely remembered having seen him before, and found a young, well-formed man with a round, compressed face, without the features losing their sharpness on that account. The form of his rounded forehead, between black eyebrows and locks, indicated earnestness, sternness, and perhaps obstinacy. He was, in a certain measure, the opposite of myself, and this very thing doubtless laid the foundation of our lasting friendship. I had the greatest respect for his talents, the more so as I very well saw that, in the certainty with which he acted and produced, he was completely my superior. The respect and the confidence which I showed him confirmed his affection, and increased the indulgence he was compelled to have for my lively, impetuous, and ever-excitable disposition, in such contrast with his own. He studied the English writers diligently. Pope, if not his model, was his aim, and in opposition to that author's Essay on Man, he had written a poem in like form and measure, which was to give the Christian religion the triumph over the deism of the other work. From the great store of papers which he carried with him, he showed me poetical and prose compositions in all languages, 
which, as they challenged me to imitation, once more gave me infinite disquietude. Yet I contrived to get over it immediately by activity. I wrote German, French, English, and Italian poems, addressed to him, the subject matter of which I took from our conversations, which were always important and instructive. Schlosser did not wish to leave Leipzig without having seen face to face the men who had a name. I willingly took him to those I knew. With those whom I had not yet visited, I, in this way, became honourably acquainted, since he was received with distinction as a well-informed man of education, of already established character, and well knew how to pay for the outlay of conversation. I cannot pass over our visit we paid to Gottsched, as it exemplifies the character and manners of that man. He lived very respectably in the first story of the Golden Bear, where the elder Breitkopf, on account of the great advantage which Gottsched's writings, translations, and other aids had brought to the trade, had promised him a lodging for life. We were announced. The servant led us into a large chamber, saying his master would come immediately. Now, whether we misunderstood a gesture which he made, I cannot say. It is enough we thought he directed us into an adjoining room. We entered to witness a singular scene, for, on the instant, Gottsched, that tall, broad, gigantic man, came in at the opposite door in a morning gown of green damask, lined with red taffeta, but his monstrous head was bald and uncovered. This, however, was to be immediately provided for. The servant rushed in at a side door, with a great full-bottomed wig in his hand, the curls came down to the elbows, and handed the head ornament to his master with gestures of terror. Gottsched, without manifesting the least vexation, raised the wig from the servant's arm with his left hand, and, while he very dexterously swung it up on his head, gave the poor fellow such a box on the ear with his right paw that the latter, as often happens in a comedy, went spinning out at the door. Whereupon the respectable old grandfather invited us quite gravely to be seated, and kept up a pretty long discourse with good grace. As long as Schlosser remained in Leipzig, I dined daily with him, and became acquainted with a very pleasant set of boarders. Some Livonians, and the son of Hermann, chief court preacher in Dresden, afterwards burgomaster in Leipzig, and their tutor, Hofrath Feil, author of The Count von P., a continuation of Gellert's Swedish Countess, Zacharia, a brother of the poet, and Krabel, editor of geographical and genealogical manuals. All these were polite, cheerful, and friendly men. Zacharia was a most quiet, file an elegant man who had something almost diplomatic about him, yet without affectation and with great good humour. Krabel, a genuine Falstaff, tall, corpulent, fair, with prominent merry eyes, as bright as the sky, always happy and in good spirits. These persons all treated me in the most handsome manner, partly on Schloss's account, partly too on account of my own frank good humour and obliging disposition, and it needed no great persuasion to make me partake of their table in future. In fact, I remained with them after Schloss's departure, deserted Ludwig's table, and found myself so much the better off in this society, which was limited to a certain number, as I was very well pleased with the daughter of the family, a very neat, pretty girl, and had opportunities to exchange friendly glances with her, a comfort which I had neither sought nor found by accident since the mischance with Gretchen. I spent the dinner hours with my friends cheerfully and profitably. Crable, indeed, loved me, and continued to tease me and stimulate me in moderation. File, on the contrary, showed his earnest affection for me by trying to guide and settle my judgment upon many points. End of Book 7, Part 1